Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. I've recorded, uh, I started recording them, so you could be able to watch them, but yeah, it's a repetitive thing, it will, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, good morning, everyone, it's so good to be with you this morning on this really cold morning, isn't it? It's uh, thankful for heat, how about you? Ooh, well, let's pray before we begin this morning, if you have your prayer card there, the prayer before the study of scripture, let's pray together. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. We are going to continue this morning to John chapter 14, verse 18. So we are, uh, we left off with verse 17 last week, and this week, uh, I just barely touched on it at the end of last week's lesson, uh, Jesus is continuing to comfort his disciples on this very last night of his life with them here before the cross, and in verse 18, he again senses their their uh, uneasiness as he has. This whole chapter began with Jesus saying, let not your heart be troubled. He can tell they are troubled by his going away, this talk of all his going away. And so he begins this section saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to read a section, a passage here from verse 18 through verse, uh, let's see, I think verse 24. Just six verses here. Let's, let's take this as a section to look at this morning. And let's, let's open our eyes and ears and minds to hear the word. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me. And I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If a man loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's 
who sent me. Let's stop right there. Now, in this passage, um, we want to look at the very first sentence and see that as I was reading it, you heard my version say, Jesus says, I will not leave you desolate. What does the word desolate mean? Orphan. We think of an orphan, because I use that word too, and your, your version may say orphan, right? Um, alone. It means they're just alone. An orphan has no one. They, they have no family, literally, to take them in. And so if you're desolate, you are completely alone. And... There is this idea, this fear in his followers that if he leaves, I mean, they've been with him three years, and they recognize that he is from God, and they don't quite understand all of who he is yet without the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they know this is the Messiah. And the idea of not being with him is just unthinkable. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you desolate. The, the real Greek word here is orphan. Orphanus, I think, is what it says. It's, it's a Greek word that means orphan. Um, so if your says orphan, it's, it's perfectly appropriate. It's, it's the right way to say it. Because Jesus is saying, I will come to you. What a blessing to know that Jesus is not going to be away forever. So they're probably taking a little bit of a sigh of relief now. And say, okay, well, I don't know why he's going away, but at least he's not going to be away from us forever. He says, I will come to you. But then he says in verse 19 something that's rather cryptic. He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Okay, there's going to be a, they know he's going away. How are we going to see you if you go away? And how is the world not going to see you if you're going away? They think he's going away to the world. They think he's actually going away maybe outside of, of uh, Israel, outside of Judea to some place where it's maybe safe because things are really getting hot and heated. Yes? Would he be trying to excuse me, mm -hmm. e explain to him in a small way to where they could start comprehending that the Holy Spirit will be with them? He is. You're right. That's where he's going to take them in these next couple of verses. He wants them to know. He's going to start introducing them to this idea that the Holy Spirit, which they don't really understand yet, is going to come to them. Um, so he says, before, but before he gets there, look at the last half of verse 19. Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, because I live, you live also. What would be the difference in phrasing there? He doesn't say, because I live, you live also. He's telling them, because I live, you will live also. Do you hear a difference? It's a future tense. They will live. What, what do you think Jesus meant by that? When you die, you're still going to be alive. Okay. Your body will be dead, but your spirit will be alive. Okay. So maybe he's educating them for the future that life will go on even after they die. Okay. What, else, my, my, what else might it be? My MSG version, it says, but you're, you're going to see me because I am alive, and you're about to come alive. Interesting, about to come alive, yeah. Jesus uses the present tense of himself. And I've mentioned this before, and I want to, every time it happens, I think we want to come back to it. Jesus is God. God is the only present being. Would transformation be a good word? 
maybe in it, he he will transform them. Yes, but we'll let's let's get this thought that Jesus is the only present being. Only Jesus can say, "I live in the present moment," because Jesus is God, and only God lives in the present moment. To God, there is no past. To God, there is no future. To God, it's all just being. He lives outside of time and space. Jesus has entered time and space as physical flesh. He is the God incarnate. But he is still the only one who can truly say, because I live, you will live also. There is coming a time when they will have eternal life. There is coming a time when they will have uh, life as it's meant to be. Right now they think they're alive. But they're not. Not like God wants them to be fully alive. Now, uh, let's stop and, and, and s- combine this with verse 20, and then I want to come back to that, you will live also. So let's just go on to 20, and I'm going to come back to that phrase, you will live also. Because he says, he's referring to that day when they will live also, in verse 20. He's referring to the future. He says, in that day, okay, so he's not saying today to them, but in that day, the day that's coming, In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So there is this relationship of God and the Father. He's been teaching that to them. I and the Father are one. He's talking about the Father's in me. I'm in the Father. He's constantly talked to them about the fact that whatever the Son, who is Jesus, whatever he hears and sees the Father doing, that's what he does. The Father's actions are Jesus' actions. They're they're, uh, one being in that sense. And now he's saying, not only will it be me and the Father, it'll be me, the Father, and you. Okay, we'll all be one in being, in the one in one in essence, and not in essence. I can use my words carefully here. We're one in relationship. Okay, so then in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. What is that day? Pentecost. Okay. Pentecost? It's what John Wesley says. John Wesley says Pentecost. (laughs) Who am I to argue with John Wesley? (laughs) I think it's even a little bit broader than than that day, but it is the day of Pentecost is when they're going to realize their life. But I think even in a broader sense, he could say in that day, meaning the day of resurrection. Yeah, because he's going... After the resurrection. ...to a spiritual form... He's trying to explain to him, even though he's not physically here, he is still with them in spirit. Right. He's trying to introduce that to them. Right. And Jesus wants them to understand that after the resurrection, things are going to begin to make sense, especially after Pentecost, when you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. But right now, after, because it's after resurrection that life can truly live. They, they can truly come alive. Because prior to the resurrection, the grave held the power. Everyone died. Nobody lived beyond the grave in, in their own knowledge. I mean, we didn't, they, didn't under, they didn't have a fully developed sense of, of uh, the end resurrection at the end of times or anything in the Old Testament. They didn't really quite understand all that. And Jesus is going to conquer death. So in that day, post the resurrection, post Pentecost, you will know I'm in the Father, Father's in me, and I'm in you. And then Jesus, and then you'll be able to live. 
Okay, now I want to take you all the way back to John chapter 5, which we've studied quite a long time ago. And remember something that Jesus said there that was so important. It was one of those lines that I told you to underline it in your Bible and always remember it. John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says that whoever believes in him who sent me, okay, meaning the Father, and hears my words and obeys them, has eternal life. It doesn't matter what version you're reading, that is always in the present tense. Has eternal life, not will have. Has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. That's John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed out of death and into life, but does not come into judgment. So what does Jesus mean by that? He means that in him, when we, when we come into Christ, now what if that means to you? It means different things to different church teachers and, and different churches, I guess, uh, and, and, and we can debate that, but the idea of being savingly in faith in Jesus Christ. To the ancient church, to John and to others, and the ancient, they would not have understood that outside of baptism. Baptism is entering into the life of the church, the life of Christ, of course by faith, but still a very important uh, step into, that's the step of obedience, if you will, to be baptized. So the ancient church would look at this and they would say, when do we live and when do we die? When do we really die? Is it when we lay this body aside? No. We don't. We, it's not, we, we don't really die when we lay this body aside. We don't, we don't die at all. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. We die when we die to Christ. To Christ. Die to ourselves. Okay? This is why baptism is so important. In it, Paul says, in baptism we are buried with Christ. That's the image of going into the water. And raised with him. That's in Romans, the book of Romans. You can read about Paul in in the book of Romans there. The, The idea of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is coming to life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Anyone who is in Christ, okay, and Paul would have understood that to be in Christ means you're a believer and you're baptized. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay? New what? New life. New life. And Jesus is telling them, because I, in that day, okay, because I live, you will live also. And you will know. So, post the resurrection, post Pentecost, we have the, we have the privilege, the gift of placing our faith into Jesus Christ and being born again, as he talks about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, of being born again, of being raised to new life, never to die again. Okay? Never to die again. Yes, we will shed our bodies, but our bodies are not the sum total of who we are, are they? They're just 
They're just one part of it. They're just a shell. They're part of it. They're a temple. Paul teaches us they're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's don't forsake the body. Okay? Why does the Bible have teachings to us against things like gluttony and call gluttony a sin? Because they ruin the, it ruins the body. You know, uh, anything that ruins the body is not okay with God. <laughs> you know, drug abuse, things like that. I mean, uh, these things, they're not okay with God because God's given us this body as a temple and we need to honor it. This is one of the challenging reasons why in today's world, just one of the ways that you can see that Christianity has lost its position of influence in, in our culture has been the dramatic rise in uh, the dramatic rise in cremation as a funeral practice of Christians. Now, if you have a loved one that's been cremated, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not saying you did some unforgivable sin. Don't worry about that. Don't even, don't even worry about it, okay? But I'm going to teach you what I have to teach you. I've got to stand on truth here. I don't like, I do funerals for people that have chosen cremation. I, I have to. I, I, they, they deserve God's love. They don't need me to stand there and preach to them. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. I would never do that. Okay, but we're all alive and we're still here and we need to talk about it, okay? Cremation is not God's plan for the body. Okay, it's not God's plan for the body. Christian burial. That was a pagan practice. Burning the body was a pagan practice, okay? But ever since Christianity, it was not a Hebrew practice at all. They knew instinctively that God, the body was holy because God created it in his image. Okay, yes? So is cremation a pagan thing? That's its origins, yes. Its origins have nothing to do with Judeo-Christian thought or teaching. It comes from the pagan world. Okay. Now, why is it wrong? Why is it bad? I'm not, I, again, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just trying to teach you. Yes, but some people can misinterpret that. Well, believe me, most people do not worry about it because they know, here's the line of thinking. God is almighty. You know, some people die in a car wreck and their bodies are burned beyond you know, recognition. Some people die in an explosion. It's no big deal. God can put it all back together at the end, right? And that's true. And he will. Yes. But as a choice, which one honors God by honoring the body? Burial or cremation? Burial does. Now, let me show you some stories that will blow your mind, okay? It's cheaper to cremate, though. It is much, it's much cheaper to cremate. And some people can't. And again, God's not holding that against them. I'm not trying to say it's an unforgivable sin. Please do not misunderstand me, Okay. There are cheap ways to burial, too. We don't have to have ornate coffins. We don't have to have ornate. The body is the ultimate organic material. And next Wednesday, we're going to talk about dust. To dust you shall return. It's Ash Wednesday. The body is definitely an organic material. But you know there's one thing that doesn't turn to dust. The bones. The bones. The bones. And do you know what happens? What mo Nobody really knows what happens. You have to grind the bones. Absolutely. They have to take those bones and grind them up. And it just, ooh, I, if you really knew it, again, nobody knows this. They don't advertise that. It's not, and, and I'm not, I'm telling you, it just, I'm just showing you how much Christianity has slipped in its influence in the culture that there, there's. Now the majority of all death is handled with cremation, not burial. Okay? 
Now, I want to say this, I want to show you something. Why is this important? If we were to go back into the book of 2 Kings, we would read a story where uh, they, were, they were burying a dead man and that, that dead man was thrown into the tomb. Some people were coming along and in, in danger they needed to. I'm just summarizing it real quickly here. Uh, I think it might be in 2 Kings 22. I can't remember the reference. I haven't looked at it in a long time. But he, um, they were burying this, they were going to bury this man who had died and they couldn't. And so they threw him into the grave. Uh, there was a tomb. You I mean they had tombs back in those days. You know, there was more than one body in a tomb quite often. And in it was the tomb of, I believe, uh, Elijah or Elisha. I've forgotten which. I think it's Elijah. Okay, and when they, they were, when they threw him in there, and he landed on the bones of Elijah. Guess what happened? The dead man came alive. Holy cow! How's that happen? Okay, fast forward, thousand years or more. <laughs> in the early church, in the fourth century, there was a man who was a bishop in the church. His name was Spiridon. He's known as Saint Spiridon. Okay, he was one of the eloquent preachers of the very first ecumenical council in the year 325 uh, AD, 325, uh, at the first council where the church all got together, and that's where they wrote out what was called the Nicene Creed to hammer out this is what it means to be Christian. And uh, Spiridon was one of the eloquent preachers that helped to do all that. When Spiridon died, um, they argued over his body, and uh, some people actually robbed the grave and took the hand. Okay? They just wanted a hand. They wanted a part of the body, because Spiridon was this holy, holy man. And, but you know what they found when they dug up the body? And this had been enough time. There was no decay. And you're looking at me going, huh? No air got to it. What? Now, even without air, you can make it as airtight as you want. It's going to decay. Okay. Organic, it's going to decay. Okay. Bones aren't, of course. Bones are going to, bones are bones. Spiridon, and there was, uh, spirit, the body, today, you could go to a little tiny island off of the coast of Crete. And the little island is called Corfu. You could go there today, and in a church that's dedicated to St. Spiridon is his casket in his body with a glass cover over the head, and you can look into that and you can see that although the skin has darkened over the years and it's almost black, it is still there. They did not embalm him. They had no knowledge of that practice. Christians did not do that, and even if they had, they couldn't have preserved him from the air and things. Even the embalming would have, wouldn't have lasted. Why is that? Why And you can look through his life. There, were, there are many holy men and women of God who miracles have been associated with when they came in contact with that, out of faith, in contact with that holy body. Now, what, why, why does Christianity say, please, let's don't cremate? Because it's God's holy temple. And just because we're dead in physical life, the heart and organs and brain stop working, doesn't mean that the spirit has necessarily left the body, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You with me? So I'm, I'm no, I know this is weird stuff. You're like, Brad, get on with it. We just came to study the Bible, right? <laughs> not, not ancient history of the church. But I want you to see why. I want you to hear 
life. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. We are here today. We are Christians in this room. We are living that life. We are alive in Christ. And when we die, we do not die in Christ. We die in Christ when we came to faith in Christ. Okay. But hopefully we were baptized and came to faith in Christ. If you haven't been baptized, that's a whole other issue. Come talk to me afterward. We'll have, we can do that for you. We just did some last week. Um, but, but, but listen to the heart of what John is writing. He's putting these little things in here for a reason. Remember, John is writing this years later, and he's coming back. There is this relationship. Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and you are in me, and I'm in you. Now, if, if, if we're in Jesus, and Jesus is in us, and Jesus is in the Father, what can we say about us and the Father? We we're in the Father. Okay? There's a relationship here. We are called, when we believe, and when we enter the life of Christ, we use the phrase that St. Paul uses so often called, in Christ. Okay? We are participating in the divine life of the Holy Trinity, spiritually. Now, you don't believe me? Let's look at what Peter says. Peter, in his second, the second epistle to Peter, it says this in verse 4. He says, that you may become, he's giving praise to God for the glories of, of Christ, and he says that you may become partakers of the divine nature. We, human beings, created by God, through faith, Entering into life in Christ, become partakers of the divine nature. So, this is some pretty important stuff here. Because Jesus is going to go on to tell us how to do that. How to make sure we're there. Um, because he lives, we live also. And then if you look in verse 21, he said, It's he who has my commandments and keeps them. That's who loves me. He who has my commandments and keeps them. You could circle the word has. Again, another present tense word. He who has my commandments. Do we have the commandments of Jesus? Yes, we do. It's right here preserved for us in the word of God. The, the scriptures, the holy scriptures. We have the commandments of Jesus. So he who has the commandments of Jesus. It doesn't say that he who has the commandments of Jesus uh, is in the Father. It says that and who keeps them. So it's not enough to just have them. We must keep them. Okay? And so if we have Jesus' words of his commands, we know his life, and we keep his commands, then what's the promise? He says, and if they love, it's he who will love me, he says. He who has my commandments keeps them. It is he who loves me. How do we show Jesus Christ that we love him? Do we just say it? I love you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. You know, sometimes we sing that in church. I love you, Lord. Well, we haven't sung that song in years. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. You remember that one? I love you, Lord. And I lift my Well, is that enough? You have to live by it. Got to live it. We got to keep them. Living it is keeping his commandments. It's not enough. John says it. This author, John, St. John, in his first epistle, he says, Brothers, it's not enough to just love in words. We must love in deeds also. Our life, our actions, the way we keep his commandments, Christians are known by their love that they live out, not that they just speak with their mouth. 
Okay, so life and how we live it has everything to do with this to John. And in, he goes on to say, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Jesus goes on to say, whoever loves me, Jesus, will be loved by my Father. Now you can be assured that our Father God will love you if you love Jesus. And he says, I will love him. Jesus will love you too. And will manifest myself to you. That's what Jesus says at the end of that verse. 21, he says, I will manifest myself. What does it mean to manifest something? What is a manifest? If we, if we use it as a noun, it's a list of what's present, right? If you have a truck, if you have a truck driving uh, across and it goes to a warehouse, what's the first thing they want to check? They want to check the manifest and see what's in the back of that truck. Okay, is it what it says it is? That's a manifest. So the idea that there's something present is a man, is, so God, Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself. What's he saying? I'm going to be present to you. It's a promise from Jesus. But it's a promise for only one group of people. Who is that group of people? people. Those who love him. Love is the key. Look at how many times he uses that word. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And if we could turn back to last week's scripture, it started in verse 15, if you love me. Verse 15 said, if you love me, you will do this. You will keep my commandments. Every one of those words, every time that word Love is used in this chapter. Guess what word it is? Always has to do with keeping his commandments. Agape. Agapeo. In its different forms of the verb. It is the unconditional love of God. It is not enough. God doesn't just say, if you love me, he doesn't use the word phileo, which means love, but it means more of a brotherly, kindly love. We must love God unconditionally. That's what he wants. God isn't interested in part of us. God is interested in all of us. See, it's just not enough to give him part of ourselves. I know we start there sometimes. Most of us. We start there. But ultimately, we want to surrender our whole life, body, soul, and spirit to God. That's unconditional love. Trust him implicitly. Trust him with your life. He is God, and he loves you. So Judas is hearing this. There's one of the 12. Judas, not Iscariot. Okay, there were two Judas. One is not Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was the betrayer, and he's already gone from the room now. He's already left to betray Jesus. Judas, who's not Iscariot, hears this, and he's got a question. And it's a good question. His question is, how? How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You see, Judas is, is bound in this time and place that we call our existence. Well, if you're here, we understand you're manifesting yourself to us. And we, you keep telling us you're going to go away. means you're probably going up there to <coughs> wherever outside of Israel. You're going off to the Gentile lands because you need to get away from all this heat uh, and, and the political problems that are going on. So you're gonna, if you're there, you're going to be manifest to whoever sees you there. How is it you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? This is a very interesting passage. 
How does Jesus manifest himself to us and not to the world? And what is John trying to communicate here? Well, Jesus answers him, and and he he answers him uh, as Jesus so often does with a little bit, not not directly, but kind of indirectly. He says, look, if a man loves me, again, it's that unconditional love word here, agapeo. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. Okay, there's the we. You can circle that word we. This is the Holy Trinity. Okay, it's not just, not just the Father, but we. We will come to the person that really loves us. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. But he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me. So Jesus is saying there's only one way to know who loves who, and it's by the keeping of his commands, the keeping of his words. And we can, be, we can rest assured that if we will place our love and our trust unconditionally in Jesus Christ, that is placing it in the Father as well and the Holy Spirit because they are one God, eternally in three persons. And God has promised through the words of Jesus right here that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will come to us and make, as he says here, make our home with him. Where does God live? Where's God's home? God's home is in you and I. God's home is here. We're going to make his home with us. It says it right there. You, you wonder why sometimes you hear this thing about, you know, the body. Why does Paul teach the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because it's where God lives. He lives in us. He lives in you and me. doesn't live in this building. This is his church. You know, and in some, and in some ethereal way, God is present everywhere, okay? But where is his abode? Where is his action seen? Where is his, his divine life lived out? It's lived out in us when we totally surrender to him. If there's going to be, if the, if the word is going to be preached, somebody needs to go preach it. If the church services are going to be held, somebody's got to do it. If the, if the gospel's going to go forth, somebody's got to take it. It's all the activity of God in our world, and he's doing it while he's living in us. So we want to be really sure. We want to be really sure that we're in Christ, that we're living in Christ, that we're, we're not just believing in Christ, but we're living in Christ. And the world can't see this, 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 this what Jesus is manifesting to his disciples, the world can't see him. He, Jesus says that the world's not going to see this. And why is the world not going to see it? Because they don't believe. Belief must precede Seeing. You know, belief must precede seeing. Um, I, I want to read you a, a fairly long passage that's so powerful. We have to read it. Um, this scripture this morning, these six verses that we've been reading, I believe is talking to us about how we participate in the divine life of God and how he lives in and through us to this world. Okay? Now, I want you to hear the words of one of the great saints of the ages. This is from Cyril of Alexandria. I've read from Cyril many times in this Bible study. 
Cyril lived in the 5th century, the very early part of the 5th century. He was bishop of Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt. Egypt was one of the great centers of thought and Christian thinking of that time. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And this is what he had to say. So listen to this. This is a fairly lengthy passage, but I think it's worth our reading. If it is merely because he loves and is loved that the Son is in God the Father, and if by the same law we are in the Son and he is in us, and no different bond of union is discernible, then whether we consider that which binds the Son to the Father or us to him and him to us, then in what sense or on what principle, I ask you, does Jesus say that in that day we shall know the mystery of all this. For in that day you shall know, quote unquote, he says, quote, that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you, end quote. Now it's Cyril talking again. For I myself live as he says, for I am life by nature and have shown the temple of my own body alive. But when you yourselves albeit you are a corruptible nature. We humans are a corruptible nature. We're, our bodies will die. We are corrupted. We're corrupted uh, with sin. But he says, albeit you are a corruptible nature also, but when you yourselves also behold yourselves living in a similar way as I do, then indeed you shall know very clearly that I, being life by nature, this is, he's talking for Jesus. When I'm using the word I, it's Jesus talking. Okay? So let me, let, me, let me hear that again. For I, that means Jesus, for I myself live. That's that present life. For I am life by nature. Jesus, okay? Remember he said I'm the way, the truth, and the life? And I've shown the temple of my own body alive after the resurrection, obviously. But when you yourselves also behold yourselves living in a similar way as I do, then indeed you shall know very clearly that I, being life by nature, knitted you through myself into God the Father, who is also himself life by nature, making you partakers, as it were, and sharers in his incorruption. Hear the words of First Peter there? I mean, Second Peter, making you partakers of the divine nature. For I am in the Father naturally, being the fruit of his essence, and its real offspring, subsisting in it, having shown forth from it, I am life of life, and you are in me, and I am in you. For as much as I appeared as a man myself and made you partakers of the divine nature by having my spirit dwell in you, for Christ is in us through the spirit. Hear that again. For Christ is in us through the spirit. Holy Spirit, in other words. Converting that which has a natural tendency to corruption into incorruption and transferring it from the condition of dying to that which is otherwise or life. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that, quote, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead shall enliven also your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. That's directly quoted from 2 Corinthians. For albeit the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, yet he comes through the Son and is his own. 
For all things are through the Son from the Father. That's a good line right there. For all things are through the Son from the Father. Okay, we're getting what the Cyril of Alexandria is teaching us about the Godhead. He's teaching us about the Trinity. This is real important. God is the author of all things, and it all comes to us through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit is what he's telling us. The divine psalmist will testify that it was through the Spirit that we were recreated for eternal life when he cries as one speaking to the God of all, quote, you shall take away their breath and they shall fail and shall turn again to their dust. But you shall send forth your spirit and they shall be recreated and you shall renew the face of the earth. That's a direct quote from Psalm 104. Do you hear how the transgression that was in Adam and the turning away from the divine commandments troubled the nature of humanity and made it return to its own earth, to its dust? But when God sent forth his spirit and made us partakers of his own nature and through him renewed the face of the earth, we were transfigured to newness of life, casting off the corruption that comes with sin and once more grasping eternal life through the grace and love toward the human race that our Lord Jesus Christ has. Wow. I know that's a long passage. Hopefully you heard it. What I really believe St. Cyril is saying to us there is that when we are made new in Christ, we are living the divine life of God. And yes, we will die, but we have already been recreated new. And we will be born into eternal life when this physical body dies. And you know, who knows? Who knows just how far we could progress? How much can we, how holy can we become this side of heaven? You ever think about that? You ever think about that? How much can our holiness progress this side of heaven? Is there a call to holiness? Do you want to become more and more holy? I hope so. I hope so. I want to become more and more holy. We have a church that's called a holiness church because we're supposed to teach that people can become more and more holy. Now, is it easy to become more and more holy? No. Because we're at war with what? The flesh. The demons. The demons and the flesh. The worldly desires. So it's it's a battle. It's a spiritual battle. But here's the good news. The good news is that Christ dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might become all that he wants us to be. Don't ever forget the ancient, ancient church, the ancient Christians always taught a theology. It was, let, me, let me just write it on the board. What's that word say? Theosis. Any, any idea what that word means? Break it apart from the little bit of Greek we know. What's Theo? Theos in Greek is God. Okay. God is? Yes. Becoming like God. To put the is on there is, is, the pros, is a process. So theosis is the process of becoming like 
God. That's the divine life you and I are called to. We are not called to just simply believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, Messiah of the world, so that we can someday live with him in heaven, avoid hell. No, we are not called for that and that only. We are called to enter into the divine life of God and to live that divine life out by his power in more and more holiness as we grow in Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul says, now we see through a mirror dimly, but we are being transformed from glory into glory into glory. Ever greater glory. Okay? There is no limit. There is absolutely no limit to how holy you can become. You with me? I don't know how hard we try, though. What, what does it take to become holy in this world? You know, in some sense, we're all holy because we're created by God. And you know that whole word, you know that word saint, you know, that, 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 you know, in the New Testament sense, the believers were all saints. It uses that word, the saints of God. You know, we're all. But at some level, in the early church, they began to understand that there are some people that, whose lives were just so holy. Like St. Spiridon. God just did amazing miracles through him. You know, even after he's dead, <laughs> God did miracles through his body. It's amazing. Yes, go ahead. It's an everyday process because the closer you get to God, the devil knows it, and it's an everyday process because every day he sees that you're closer, that's, he's going to try harder and harder to ruin that. That's so true. It is, a pro- it is that battle. It is a daily, moment-by-moment moment battle. That is why it is so important that we take our faith seriously, that we take the Holy Scriptures seriously, that we take Bible studies seriously, that we take worship seriously, that we take all of this seriously. Because we can rest in one thing, and that is that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Yes, it's a battle, but we already know who's won. We do not have to lose. We do not have to give in to temptation. We do not have to stay the same. I mean, there, let's, let's just face it, guys. There is no staying the same. Okay? If we're not growing in holiness, guess what we're doing? We're receding. Okay? There is no status quo in the spiritual life. Either growing or you're dying. And the beautiful, ironic thing is that as we're dying physically, we can be growing spiritually. I want to transition here at the very end of class. We just have a few minutes left. With this thought. Now, where Jesus is going in our next lesson, Jesus is going to start talking directly to them about his sending the Holy Spirit. Okay, this the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete, as we learned a couple weeks ago. But for now, I want us to close with this thought. How do you know that you're growing in holiness? How do we know that we're growing in holiness? As you read the lives of great and holy people, it's, there's one common characteristic 
in all of their lives. If you read the memoirs of, of the, the saints of the ages, whether that's in the last century or, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever, they all have, there's a common characteristic to the holy, from, from Mother Teresa who just lived in this last century to Saint Spiridon who lived in the fourth century. There's a common characteristic in all of their lives as you begin to read their memoirs and their writings and their teachings. And for some of them, it was their sermons and things that they wrote. And you know what that common characteristic is? Reading the Bible. Studying the Bible. Okay. Broken and spilled out. Okay. I'm seeing lots of good ideas. What? Dedication and service. Service, yes. I think it's one way it's more under you understand the Bible more. Okay. The closer you get to God, the understanding becomes clear. Yeah, he reveals himself more and more. That's part of that manifesting. But here's the comedy. Those are all good, and those are all true of their lives. I heard another one. Love. Love was manifest more. Faith. But, what? Faith. Faith was manifest more. But, but here's something else that was manifest in them, and it's clear when you begin to read their lives. Um, they felt, they felt more and more sinful. More and more sinful? More and more sinful. Really? Okay. Now, here, here's why. Why does the Apostle Paul say, I'm the chief of all sinners? I'm gonna, I wanna, we've got to get this in the last five minutes, okay? Because this is huge. I thought it was because he persecuted the Christians. <laughs> no, that was his past sin. Yeah. But because he realized... We all have our past sins. But he knew he had more... Okay, so I'm going I'm to try and draw. I'm going to draw the impossible. Okay, you can't draw God, but I'm just going to... I'm, I'm going to try and draw... Okay, this out here is, is the Godhead, okay? Let's call it the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, the life of God, okay? And, and we over here, i go to my stick, my average stick person. Do you realize what you're doing is wrong? We're moving towards something. Uh, stay with that thought, Jackie. You're, you're close. We're moving towards God. If we're not moving towards God, we're, we're receding away from God. You know, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Say, so we're, we're moving towards God. As we're moving towards God, the, the closer... Now, remember, God is light. God is truth. God is life. God is beauty. God is the source of all things, okay? As you get closer to a light, does the light become brighter or dimmer? Brighter. Brighter, okay? And the light that he sheds on your way becomes brighter, okay? So more light, the light becomes more intense. The closer you get to God, the more intense the light of his love, the light that he shines on you. And you're going to see what? In more light, you see more what? Sin, failures, mistakes, small things. I mean, we don't become God. We don't, that's not what theosis means. We don't become God. We become like God. Our pursuit is to become like God. Okay. Satan made the opposite uh, choice. He wanted to be God rather than just be holy and become like God. Always inferior to God because we're his creation. But to become like him. So why did these saints feel more sinful the holier they got? Because that's what humility before God does. I, uh, we, 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 we see more and more what needs to be changed. Can we ever change enough? No. Can we ever be perfect enough? No. Can we ever be holy enough? No. So let's stop being satisfied with the status quo. Here's what I want to tell you today. Pursue holiness. 
The book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews said, pursue holiness without which no one shall see God. It's right in the book of Hebrews. Pursue holiness without which no one shall see God. It's time we rise up to a call to holiness, to a call to becoming daily, moment by moment, more like our God. And the more we do that, his love radiates from us and the world will see. The world can't see what it doesn't believe in. Jesus has left us. We are his hands and feet. We are where the Holy Spirit dwells and lives. And if, they're gonna, if the world is going to see God, it's going to see it through you and I. There's no other option. Okay? There's nobody else waiting to come on God's long agenda of, of how long he leaves the time run in, in time of his creation. Not waiting for any more messiahs. Not waiting for any more prophets. It's here. The time has come. That's why the scripture always says, now is the day of salvation. Okay? Now is the day of salvation. Well, guess what? Now is the day of sanctification, too. Now is the day of holiness. Now is the day of committing your life to a path of becoming more and more like God. And just get ready for this, though. The more you grow closer to Him, the more you'll see that needs to change within you. Okay? You won't reach a point where you go, man, I'm getting better and better. Wow, this is good. I'm getting more and more holy. Because then you've just done what? You've just sinned. (laughs) It's called the sin of pride. (laughs) And it's the downfall if it's the root of a lot. You see, think of it like this. There is an ancient story. Uh, It's it's depicted in an icon. An icon, you know, is a beautiful uh, ancient religious painting that tells the story. It's not meant to be a piece of art. It tells theological significance. An icon does. And there's an icon called... Uh, the Ladder of Divine Ascent. It's actually a book that was written also in the 6th century, I believe. The Ladder of Divine Ascent. And this icon, it's, it's a, it's a thing, it shows Jacob's ladder. You know, the story of Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. He's wrestling with God and he sees this ladder and he needs to climb this ladder between here and heaven. Okay. And so when you look in this icon, I have one in my office. It was a gift from a dear friend recently. And in this ladder, uh, you see different you know, people climbing the ladder, and up at the top of the ladder is Jesus in heaven, okay? And down at the bottom, below the ladder, is the big mouth of Satan. It's just this big behemoth, vile creature, you know, it represents Satan, it's ready to... And on this ladder are people that are climbing, and there's a bunch of people that are falling. Because what this is trying to represent is that as we go through life, this is the ladder, okay? As we're climbing the ladder... We might fall. That's okay. Okay? But let's stay back on there. There's people trying to pull us off. Okay? There's demons out there trying to pull us off the ladder. But with faith in Christ, God's Spirit has been given to us. We do not have to fall. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You with me? Jacob's ladder. The ladder of divine ascent. Well, now we're up to the top of the hour and we probably should close. What questions have I created in your heart and mind now that I've already made you feel so bad about cremation and made you feel so bad about yourselves? And what, what, any questions, thoughts, comments, complaints? I, I think I should clarify yes. John Wesley's comment. Go for <laughs> it. Because I just threw Go out for one it. word. Please do. But at 1420, what he wrote, the whole thing that John Wesley wrote was, at that day, when you see me after my resurrection... 
but more intimately at Pentecost. Beautiful, and that's it. So Wesley said Wesley saw both. Yeah. No, you're right though. Wesley saw both. He saw that because Pentecost is when we intimately see Jesus for all he is, because he intimately gives us the indwelling power of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now it gives us the we, we have the Holy Spirit from the moment we come to faith. We can't come to faith without the Holy Spirit, but we have it more fully in the sanctifying process of, of our Pentecostal experience, if you will. Good, 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 good call. Yes, Sylvia. I'm wondering you're talking here about you love me, you see me, um, etc. I'm wondering after the resurrection, <clears throat> he appeared to a couple on the Emmaus road. He came back, Jesus came back and appeared to his disciples. Right. So he was walking around places. Mm-hmm. Did people who were not believers see him? I can't definitively answer that. I don't think scripture teaches us that. There might be some great wise father that's written on it that I don't know. My my guess is maybe no. It seems like he was there to be seen. Because they wouldn't they would they would not see him. He that that he he didn't manifest himself to the world because the world didn't believe. That he met well the records that we have is that he was man it tells us in the book of Acts that he was seen by over five hundred witnesses. Yeah, that's right. Far as we know, those were all believers. Witnesses is a the word for witness is the one who believes. Uh, so I, that's a great question that I don't have the answer to, um, but I, I like the thought. Well, did he or didn't he? I don't know. Well, if, I would think that if if you weren't a Christian and you didn't see him, you wouldn't know who he was. Correct, because you can't recognize the beauty of God. Or they, if they did, they wouldn't have crucified him. Right. right? They wouldn't have crucified him had they done. And, and, it, and it would seem so easy to say, well, just now you're alive. Just go prove yourself to the world. Go stand in the temple and show them your wounds. And you can just prove to the whole world, right? No, they wouldn't believe anyway. Their hearts are too hard. That's a good question. I'm going to dig that. I'm going to dig on that one for a while. That's so sad that people don't believe. It's just sad. It is sad. And it... And it it hopefully moves each one of us to become more and more like Christ. Because the only way they're going to believe is to see it. And the way they see is through us. Through the church. Living the life of Christ. The divine life of Christ. It was making me think while you were talking about the people I know who aren't saved. Yeah. Just so many of them. Just breaks my heart. And yet, you know, and they won't listen when I talk. You know what the greatest thing you can do for them is to pray for them. Pray for them. Prayer is the greatest work of the human soul. We've got a class on Wednesday nights about prayer. Kind of It's a deep class. Okay, we're really going deep. We're not just treating it on the surface. But we talked leaving last night. And I I did record last night's. I thought I recorded last week's, but I can't find it. I don't think it took. But that's okay. I kind of restarted last night with a little better beginning and went over what I talked about in the first week. But uh, you could all, I will put that up. Hopefully, in the next day or so, I'll put that up on the podcast. If you, the prayer, it'll be this. It'll. It says it's the second one, but it's frankly, it's it's the second one. But I didn't get the first one. I can't find where I taped the first one. I thought it was on here. I must have forgot to hit the record button or something like that. I don't know. But um, you can listen to that prayer class if you couldn't come on Wednesday, uh, because it is. You're right, Joan. It's so many, and we're the only plan God has. Okay. That, that would be at the podcast that you can get to by bradrallyministries.com. 
and then you click on the word podcast. The podcast is also called, if you have a phone or a podcast app, it's called Forming the Spirit Within. That's the name of the podcast series, Forming the Spirit Within. And you can look it up on iTunes, you can look it up on Podbean or whatever pod phone player you want, and you can listen to it and subscribe right there. Well, let's close with prayer. There is some soup and, and goodies back here for us to enjoy, but let's close with prayer. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for inviting us into your divine life. Teach us, Father. Teach us your way that we may walk in it. Shape us, mold us, uh, convict us. Help us to repent. Help us to grow in your spirit, in love for you. Unconditional love. Teach us what your love looks like. Help us, Father. We need your grace. We cannot do it by ourselves. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.